Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargreaves, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week, I'm talking to Zoe Amar about digital transformation in the charity sector as we dig into the findings of the 2022 Charity Digital Skills Report. And in this week's Good News Bulletin, we've got new funding for cancer-related research projects, thanks to a partnership between a research arm of Cancer Research UK and the University of Edinburgh. So, Russ, if you had to choose a groundbreaking moment of digital transformation from your past personally, mm. um, do you have any thoughts on what you would go for? I'm always still slightly amazed at the basic stuff, right? Like YouTube exists. Um, I grew up listening to Radio 1 with a cassette player. That's how old I am. So <laughs> now I can listen to 1980s pop music all day, every day, if that's what I want. And as my colleagues and my family would know, that is what I want. So <laughs> if I want to listen to the Pet Shop Boys and listen to the singles or listen to the nine minute remixes or listen to their live shows, it turns out that uh, so now I can and my day is done. So um, it's fairly lo-fi. But that's as exciting as it gets for me. What about you, Emily? Oh, you know, for me, I have to go for MSN slash Windows Live Messenger circa <laughs> 2004. Um, being able to go onto my parents' laptop, which I had to do uh, very sneakily because they didn't like the idea, funnily enough, of me talking to random strangers on the internet in my early teenage years. Sneaking onto their laptops to uh, talk to friends after school was a revelation and you could put little um what i mean they weren't even emoji at that point i think it was even dating pre-emoji but you could put little graphics of like roses and hearts in your name and um i was just obsessed i would pretend to be doing homework and just be chatting 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 for hours after school and i think honestly it improved my touch typing skills far more than my compulsory it gcse ever did your WhatsApp game now as well is very strong. I don't mind sharing oh, that with the reader. So I wonder if that's what you learned yeah. from your, your halcyon days. Vital skills. Yeah. Um, but the YouTube thing, absolutely. I mean, you call it lo-fi, but such a good point because I've recently been spending quite a lot of time down in Third Sector's basement archive where we have copies of the magazine that date back to 1992. And there were issues from 2008 saying, oh, what about this YouTube video <laughs> platform for young people? Will it ever take off? Who can we say? What's the charity angle of it going to be? Just such a funny time we've grown up in. And why are we talking about this now, Emily? Why is it relevant now? Well, Russ, we're talking about it because last week the 2022 Charity Digital Skills Report was released, giving us all the latest information on how the sector is managing its own digital transformation. Um, the annual report acts as a barometer for the sector's digital progress. It's published by Zoe Amar Digital and Think Social Tech. And each year, it maps out the sector's digital priorities, analyses key trends in tech adoption, and looks at the skills gaps that might still exist in the sector. Absolutely. And the 2022 report was based on a survey of more than 400 charity leaders from organisations from a range of sizes and at different stages of their own digital maturity. From those that are just starting out to organisations that feel really confident and really capable in their digital skill sets. The report acknowledges that the sector has been digitally transformed since the COVID-19 pandemic kicked in. The vast majority of charities now see digital as a much greater priority, having grown their confidence and their skills during lockdown. 
So there's a strong demand for digital services and hybrid working, as we all know, is now here to stay. Sure is. But there are also plenty of challenges, including a greater divide emerging between the charities who are approaching digital strategically and those who are at much earlier stages of doing that work. And this is exacerbated by some significant funding and support needs, such as funding for devices, software and infrastructure, training and skills development. If these needs do go unmet, it will diminish their impact. And the report calls for a sector-wide approach to funding digital more effectively trying to shore up charity sustainability and create inclusive environments. Absolutely. So to find out more, I spoke to Zoe Amar, founder of Zoe Amar Digital and leader of the research. And I started by asking her what she thought were the most important and striking findings in this year's Digital Skills Report. Well, I think the most significant thing for me was that the shift to digital that we've seen during the pandemic is very much here to stay. I do think there's been a little bit of a question hanging over 2022 of whether the shift to digital is going to be a permanent one. And in the report, one of the most notable findings for me was that 82% of charities now see digital as either a much greater or more of a priority. And what that all tells me is that charities are really committing to digital for the future. And on that note, more than half of the charities we spoke to, so 56%, have a strategy for digital. And that is slightly less than the 60% last year. But nevertheless, I feel that things are still going in the right direction. So I'm not too worried about that. I do think that's a sign that there's a real commitment to seeing digital as a strategic priority. Of course, there are barriers. And I know we're going to talk about challenges today. And clearly, skills is always going to be a a bit of a challenge. That's one of the reasons why we set up the report in the first place. And it was interesting to see that in the report that upskilling staff and volunteers is the second greatest barrier to digital progress. And that's faced by 38 percent of charities. So it's really interesting to see that that has become a really significant issue, I feel, across the sector. Now, how do we support our staff and our teams to make the most of digital and get the most from those tools and to innovate. Absolutely. And because I think there was this question of, is this going to be a crisis management response? Effectively, something we're just doing in the short term because we have this unprecedented set of circumstances which are happening here and now. So we're pivoting, but then we'll go back to business as usual. And I totally agree. I think we're now seeing that actually this is just going to be the way that the sector is working from now on. And that requires a whole different set of adjustments. And I noticed that, you know, in the 2021 charity digital skills report, the idea of a digital skills gap between larger charities and small charities. And of course, you're surveying um, organisations at all different stages of their digital journey. But you do say that there's this digital skills gap. Now that came up last year. And I know it's kind of an ongoing concern for you as we're seeing this kind of paradigm shift into working with digital as just you know, our way of life now. So could you briefly explain what it is that you mean when we're talking about that digital skills gap? And why should we be worried about the digital divide between small and large charities? It's a great question. This is an issue that I've been worried about for, for years. And I know that you and I have, have talked about it before. And for me, it's it's about the, the distribution of digital and, and the, the potential the opportunities that come with that between 
organisations who, who have different levels of resources. And this issue of the digital haves and have nots, as I call it, has been around for some time. And we've seen some clear evidence of that in the report this year. So it's some examples of that. Half of the small charities we spoke to are in an early stage with digital. So that was actually 56% of them compared to a quarter of large charities. So that was 24% of those larger organisations. And just to reinforce that, so nearly one in five of the small organisations we spoke to were at the kind of curious, so very sort of early stages of digital, compared to just 2%, just 2% of large charities And that has not changed since last year. So the context there really is that with all these additional financial pressures, the the loss of the small charities coalition, this evidence we're seeing here of that growing divide between small and large organisations. One of my worries is that smaller organisations will not will be left behind because they're not getting the funding and the support they need for that progress that's going to ultimately help them reach more people and make even more of an incredible difference. And we know especially that the small charities sector is really time poor, it's really resource poor. And also thinking about it in the context of 2022, once again, these are the organisations who are closest really to the communities that they serve. They have those really intense frontline on the ground relationships and they are having to, you know, fulfill so many different roles just to kind of work with the communities and the people that they support. And we know that once again, we're seeing that demand for services going up and up and up. So I guess there's a real resourcing problem there as well, because a lot of the time these are purely voluntary organisations or they're organisations that run on one man or really small teams. So having the time to dedicate to building digital skills, building you know confidence in this area is going to be strapped. Absolutely. And I do think that headspace is a challenge across the sector at the moment. That was one of the support needs that came up in the report again this year. People saying that we want to do this. We just need some time to do that. And it needs to be resourced as as well. So we have that moment where we can all take a step back together as a team and think about what we've done, what we've learned from it, where we're going next with digital and how that's going to help increase our impacts. Absolutely. And I think another finding from your report that really interested me was that we're still seeing a real lack of urgency around digital when you get to that board level. And Something that comes up whenever we have conversations about digital, whether it's on a webinar or in conference or forums, there's often the same question comes, which will be from someone in the audience who will say, we see the value of this, but we're really struggling to bring our board on that journey with us and to make the case for it to our board. And I think this really bears out in the findings of your report. You know, more than half of boards, 54%, said they didn't have any plans to increase digital skills or they just didn't know what those plans were. Um, And just one in five charities said they sort of had buy-in and support for digital at that trustee level. So why is it, do you think, that boards are being so left behind in this debate? So this data, I always have a question about the findings every year because I'm surprised even as we come out two years of intense digital change, why aren't we seeing firmer support for digital on charity boards? And this data, as you know, always really worries me. I was thinking about this ahead of our conversation today, and I feel that 
what's in charity's own gift to do about this is that we really need to start expecting more, if not demanding more from trustees about this. And for me, the, the key part of the pipeline to get right is about recruitment. So when you bring in new trustees, when they're on the other side of the table from you, uh, uh, interview those candidates, ask them how they have made decisions about digital Ask them what criteria they use to make those decisions. Ask them how they know if those decisions have been successful ones or not and where they've taken external advice. And actually, I think it's a real indication of digital maturity and skill if you're talking to trustees who, who are willing to hold their hands up and say, actually, we, we didn't have the answer about whether to invest in that CRM or not. So we, you know, we brought in a, a consultant or we talked to another organisation or we know that our auditors have some expertise in this. So we spoke to them about that. So I think asking those questions is, is really important. So find out about their, their skills and also their comfort levels with, with the digital challenge on those, those potential trustees. And the other thing that I would love to see change, which I do think is part of this as, as well, is that we need to create a much stronger culture of, of learning on boards. One of my bugbears is that I do worry sometimes that we perhaps treat trustees with a little too much reverence, that we put them on a pedestal. And actually, we should be just as demanding of them because this is a highly, highly skilled job, albeit volunteers. But we should be asking for more from them in terms of performance and scrutiny for strategy and um, scrutiny and the help they give to their organisations in digital. Absolutely. And presumably you do become a trustee because you want to see your organisation thriving and growing and developing as well. So that should really just be part and parcel of that package. It should. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the analogy that's often given is it's, it's like finance. If you had new trustees coming on board who say, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I don't know anything about finance or I'm not comfortable with finance, then you wouldn't bring them onto your board, would you? So I think we need to be applying the same standards to that as we would with digital. And, you know, from voluntary roles to kind of other positions in the sector, I think there's a thread that comes through this year's digital skills report, which is about the need for support and the need for resourcing. And something that you talk about a lot in this report is the need for funders across the sector to be supporting digital development, whether that is funding for devices or funding for training and skills development, which we know is needed in organisations to help them build that digital maturity. So why do you think that there is a gap here? It's not currently being treated as a funding priority. And what do we need to do now to change that? So I think this is like a really key need across the sector. It was actually very good to see it coming across loud and clear in the the data. Uh, I think that what this speaks to is how the job of being a funder has actually become a job that's to a certain extent digital now. Uh, So grant management, grant making, originally not digital jobs, but actually now one way you need to have, again, not dissimilar to trustees in some ways, being able to make better decisions, being able to afford better scrutiny and to think about how you can provide better support to charities in, in this area. So I do think it's a skills gap. And one of the reasons why we've made the funders pledge so specific is Nissa Ramsey and I, my co-author, were saying, well, actually, 
whilst funders do need to, to, to have these skills, they it's a big learning curve for them. So what can we advise them to do? Really clear, tangible, specific things that they need to explore when they are making that decision about that funding application that's got a digital element to it. So they've got an idea of what success looks like. So I hope that the pledge that we put together, which Cloth Workers Foundation brilliantly have already committed to, gives funders a checklist effectively to work through of this is how you can fund digital most effectively. And what's in the pledge? Can you kind of give us a little more colour of that? Yeah, sure. So there's 10 things. So I, I won't go through the 10 things. I'll just pick <laughs> out some, some highlights. Um, but one of the, the, the really interesting sort of big needs which came through from the report this year uh, was about covering core costs. And actually mm. we saw this in last year's report as well, charity saying there are funders that I can go to for, for innovative, you know, new product development, innovation. But actually what I want is new devices. I want to be able to fund software for my staff so we can do our work and also do these projects that we need funding for effectively. We need licenses. So some of that stuff that's not very sexy or, or exciting seemingly, but actually is really necessary for charities to function and to increase their, their impact as, as, as well. And speaking to that point you raised earlier, we would, would love funders to really proactively look at that digital skills gap between large and small charities. So maybe it's a question there of looking at what additional support they can give to small charities with digital funding. It might also be bringing large and small grantees together to to learn from each other around what they're doing with, with digital. Um, and then I think what's also very helpful to look at as, as well is where funders are perhaps willing to step away from that model of, oh, we have to fund a specific solution on this right up front. So often, I think the the funding where there's the most value in digital is where you can spend some time on discovery and understanding user needs and testing out new ideas and concepts and products and services. And that's how ultimately funders can get more bang from their buck. Investing in that discovery as much as the next steps of, of the project and then the rollout of the, the final product or service or whatever, whatever it is. So I think this speaks to how funders and digital funding need to work in more of an agile way with a lowercase a. Absolutely. And you know what, that is something I hear so much from the people I you know speak to day to day in the sector. There's a real demand at the moment to say, look, we really want to see a shift away from, you know, very specific project based funding into that kind of core funding, unrestricted funding that will give us the freedom to kind of use the the funds that we get and the grants that we get in the ways that will help us best serve people. So that is definitely not limited to digital in any way. And I think we saw that funders can do that. During the pandemic, they demonstrated incredible agility and flexibility with the charities that they work with. So it's almost as though we need to see again that move to this is just the way that we're going to work now. Um, and hopefully, you know, I think that would benefit the sector in the long run, for sure. I totally agree. And I think what's so interesting about your question, or say your previous question, Emmy, about trustees, is that this speaks to two areas of the sector that do not always historically work in that agile, iterative way, yet where that change is, is really needed, because the rest of the sector has changed around grant making and also governance as well. So I hope those are two areas that we'll begin to unlock over the next couple of years. 
And so in the report, you know, there are obviously several areas where you talk about the developments that are needed. You know, we see that charities are still struggling with developing the skills to sort of use, manage and analyze their data, for example. And something that I thought was absolutely fascinating is that almost half of the charities you surveyed still say they are poor at digital fundraising, despite the fact that we've seen online giving absolutely explode in the last two years. And according to the report, you know, saying, you know, it's it's doubled during the pandemic. So we're talking about digital transformation. Um, when it comes to this, how do you kind of move beyond uh I guess people saying things like, oh, well, but we do loads of video calls now and we're really comfy with that um, to something that feels actually really genuine and to build that confidence in those areas. This is about ambition. It's about the, the scale of the ambition and charities. And I think there are lots of charities out there who do see it this way, actually, where they digital is, is not an own end goal anymore in itself it's about how can we do this to increase our impact so the advice I always give charities who are thinking that question through and I think it is a question you do need to pause over perhaps and take your time on because you have to get it right I always say the first thing to do is to go back to your organizational vision go back to your purpose look at your governing documents and also look at your business plan for this year and weirdly I think the answers to what you need to prioritize digitally there's a clue in in those documents even if it's not uh signposted as as a digital thing and so of course uh the digital skills report has just come out and we will of course include a link in the show notes to the full report so that anyone who's listening can go and read the whole thing for themselves but one final question for you Zoe what would you most like to see change Based on this year's report and the findings that you're looking at today, what would you most like to see change between now and the next time you're running this survey in 2023? So there are uh, two things I would love to see change, if I may. So the, the first thing is just briefly, I would love to see um, better leadership around digital. So in this year's report for the fourth year running, charities told us that they would really like their CEO and board to provide a clear vision of what digital could help them achieve. And that was 58% of organisations told us that. 58%, that's more than half of the organisations we spoke to. So my challenge is to any leaders who are listening to this, please do go back to your teams and discuss what that North Star is. What are we really trying to achieve here with digital? How is it going to help us increase our impact? And then the second thing I would really like to see is about inclusion in how we use digital and really abiding by that principle. So we saw in this year's report that one in four charities do not have diverse teams developing digital products and services. We also saw that that same number are not conducting user research with diverse communities. And that really worries me as a woman of colour, because what that says to me is that we could be embedding some systemic inequalities in the way that we use digital. And as we scale digital further, I think that's a real issue. And the backdrop to all of this is, of course, the wider sector conversation we're having about diversity and inclusion. And for me, that's really a conversation about power. It's a conversation about belonging. And it's a conversation about how we really live our values as a sector. And digital is another manifestation of that. So I would love to see the dial begin to move on that next year. And I do think that's linked to the first point I made about 
stronger digital leadership. Such an important challenge to end on. Zoe, thank you so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me, Emily. It's been an absolute pleasure. Each week, as ever, we bring you our Good News Bulletin, a positive or a quirky story that we've spotted in the sector. So, Russ, I'm handing over to you this week. What have you got? Well, I don't think it gets much more positive than this, to be honest with you, (laughs) uh, Em. Um, So we found out this week uh, news from Cancer Research Horizons. That's a pharmaceutical company that works with Cancer Research UK, one of the UK's biggest charities, of course. Absolutely, It works with their researchers to get the ideas and the innovations that are coming out of the charity to patients as quickly as possible. Cancer Research Horizons said this week that it is sponsoring 10 places for cancer-related research projects from across the UK to participate in the University of Edinburgh's Venture Builder Incubator. Mm, fancy. Um, well, <laughs> it sounds sort of slightly silly, but it, it actually is trying to do something really essential. So it's a 16-week programme which aims to support PhD students and early career researchers as they try and develop their business ideas, they build their skills and secure more funding. And through the scheme that's just been announced, what each potential startup will get is £2,000 in cash. It will get business support um, through a series of workshops and networking Mm -hmm. events, um, advice from experts, mentoring, peer-to-peer learnings, all that stuff that at the beginning of your career is so essential. And also access to academic stuff from the University of Edinburgh, from its, what they call, entrepreneurial ecosystem, as well as the data expertise that the university has. So a really valuable project. And places are available for PhD students, for early careers researchers and academic staff from the University of Edinburgh or from Harriet Watt University, as well as early career researchers who are focused on cancer-related projects from all across the UK. And previous cohorts who've gone through this course have seen considerable successes, attracting a whopping £1.8 million in funding over the last year. And what the next cohort of uh, researchers and PhD students are going to be building on, listen, here's what this sort of project funding has achieved in the past. It's been able to develop early diagnostic tools and less invasive testing to enable improved outcomes for people who are affected by cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, the company OncoAssign is a medicine startup that integrates AI, artificial intelligence and cancer diagnostics for accurate treatment prediction. Um, And the company Tenzyme, a startup which is devising a simple method of detecting cancers just using uh, samples from urine or saliva. And early detection is so important. It's amazing to see that there are small companies which are dedicating their time to accelerating these processes. We know that, you know, when you have cancer and you have to live with cancer, early interventions and early treatments Mm -hmm. make such a phenomenal difference. And as usual with these things, Emily, I'm going to try and make this into a charity finance story as well (laughs) as a a health story. Um, This sort of thing is exciting because it means that charity research is getting into all those venture funds. Mm Billions and billions of pounds and dollars that are floating around that are normally put into startups that are going to deliver things to us a little bit more quickly sure. or uh, are going to try and help our workspaces grow a little bit more quickly. Not bad things, but suddenly we've got more news that we're going to see charities getting involved mm. in this, which for those of us who work in charities and are interested in big finance, it couldn't be more exciting. Um Listen, what do we want more of? Do we want risky capital being invested in a slightly quicker version of Deliveroo or Amazon, but with a slightly different name on it? Or do we want to see it being used to help people survive and live Mm -hmm. with cancer? Which, as you say, it touches every single life in the UK, more or less. 
and suddenly there's going to be these sort of millions up for grabs to to help out. Um, I'll add one other thing. It's a rocky time in the UK at the moment for science and innovation. Um, I was watching the uh, debates between the uh, Tory candidates with my father-in-law, who is a uh, retired physicist and scientist. Um, And he was telling me all about what a rocky time it is for sort of innovation and getting new ideas off the ground and looking after people in the UK. Um, And what we're actually seeing at the moment is the charity sector telling a pretty upbeat story about getting in there and trying to do much more in a bit of society that does need more work, does need more funding and has had a pretty difficult time of late. So listen, I couldn't be more excited and I'll be watching it with interest. Good news all round. Absolutely. And applications for this course are now open. The final deadline is on Friday, the 9th of September. So if this sounds of interest to you, if you have a fantastic cancer research project and also you love listening to this podcast, <laughs> bit of a niche crossover, but you know, you might be out there. Who knows? Um, you've got a couple of months still to apply. And I suppose actually, you know, on a totally unrelated note, but by the time this comes out, we will actually know who those final two Tory candidates are going to be. Maybe they're also listening and will now uh, drive huge amounts of investment into science and innovation and important charity funding. I would like to think that charity funding will be the failure or success <laughs> question for the remaining two prime ministerial candidates. That's where they're going to rise and fall, let's be honest. And that's a wrap on this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. But in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. I'm Russell Hargrove. Thank you to our guest, Zoe Amar, and of course, our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.